What does healing mean to you? When we can take a little bit more of a deeper breath in God and feel that God's presence is with us and will always be with us. Revealing Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Episode 9, got a PSA. We said at the end of our last episode that Maria Riddle would be our guest today, but we uh, decided to change change it up and have Sarah Lund, Pastor Sarah Lund, is our guest for this show. Yeah, we thought Sarah would have uh, several things to say, and she even wrote a blog post on some of the recent um, celebrity suicides, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, and reflected on some of what suicide reduction might look like. Mm-hmm. So um, we felt that it would be more timely to have her on the show, and I think she did a good job with that. Yes. And a- after the show, I would you know, recommend uh, to our listeners going to Sarah's blog, reading the post we referenced in the interview. She's got a lot of good things to say. Yeah, and we'll have that on our website. Yeah. Tony and I met Sarah uh, when she started working in Indianapolis, Indiana at the Christian Theological Seminary as the Vice President for Advancement there, uh, big into fundraising. Uh, She was working at the same divinity school as Jen, who uh, was a student at the time. And Sarah had just written a book called Blessed Are the Crazy, Breaking the Silence About Mental Illness, Family, and Church. So we we became fast friends. But... um, so Sarah, she comes from a, a background uh, in a number of pastoral positions. She's an ordained minister with standing in the United Church of Christ and the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. She served as a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and New Smyrna Beach, Florida. Pastor Sarah also serves as a board member of the National United Church of Christ Mental Health Network, my wife, Jen Riddle, is part of the Bethany Fellows Program, and uh, Sarah Lund, uh, she serves on the leadership team for Bethany Fellows, which is a national program mentoring young pastors such as Jen, who have just graduated. So even with both of them moving on uh, beyond Christian Theological Seminary, there's a still a, a really strong link, and it, it's great to have that going on. Uh, Pastor Sarah is married to Jonathan Lund, who is a medical massage therapist at Carmel Wellness, and they are the proud parents of their elementary-aged son, Carter. Fia, a boxer poodle mix, is also a beloved member of the Lund family. The day before we interviewed Sarah, she was just installed at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Indianapolis, and you could just hear the excitement in her voice. Um, Just a a big uh, accomplishment and, and movement back into pastoral ministry 
for Sarah and uh, really That's happy right. for her. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was good to have her on the program as close to that as we did. So I met Sarah in Indianapolis at a church when we spoke about mental illness. I was sharing a little bit of my story as someone with mental illness, and she was talking about her family members who who have mental illness and mental health diagnoses. Yes. Um, and that's the subject of her book, Blessed Are the Crazy. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've been able to meet with her. Uh, we had a chance to invite her to Faithful Friends one time. And right. She spoke to us in our group and uh, led a devotion. Um, and uh, it's been nice to see her career, her ministry develop. Mm-hmm. Tony, last episode we talked about the uh, 10-year flood anniversary here in Columbus, Indiana, June 7th. We did. Eric had a role to play on Channel 8 News. You had a better role to play at the (laughs) event. Passing out serviceberry muffins. Yeah. Kindly made by Eric's mother, Sally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Neela, my daughter. Okay. We picked six cups of uh, service berries, and they they went at it. And yep. you served the mayor of Columbus. I served, and I ate. I probably ate five of those. <laughs> Your wages, yeah. yeah, that's right. That was a great time. If you've listened to our program or read anything I've written, you'll know that I'm a big fan of John Prine, the Americana artist who has gone back since 1969. He has just come out with a new album called The Tree of Forgiveness. And I had a chance to see him in concert at the Louisville Palace. And it was amazing. Um, the guy is 72, and he still got it in him. He, yeah. he gave it all he had. He, he uh, performed about two hours. This will possibly be his farewell tour, but... Um, you know, he's going out with a bang if that's the uh-huh. case. Yeah. Any favorite songs, Tony? Oh boy. I favorite don't know his very well. No, boy. I'll I'll have to pick something from the newest album. Um Summer's End. Uh um, okay. I've I've been playing that uh wearing a groove in that C D. Good. <laughs> I need to listen to that. I'll get that on Spotify. Yeah, I'll yeah, uh, yeah bring bring it up. Oh, and you'll hear a little bit on the interview, um, the new addition of my family, Briley the Biscuit Roberts, um, a uh, 80-pound lab. Okay, well, um, this was a great interview with Sarah. Yeah, you might want to listen for a couple things. Just notice her her uh, passion and uh, her deep personal history with Uh, mental illness. Sarah, in your book, Blessed Are the Crazy, you talk about um, growing up in a house that was impacted by mental illness and mental health challenges. I'd like you to share a little bit about what that was like and uh, how that uh, impacted your faith and perspectives. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, One of the realities of my family background is that we didn't talk about what was happening in terms of it being caused by a brain disorder or a brain disease or mental illness. And so my father um, was having a really difficult time 
uh, working and uh, being present with the family. And this was in the early 1980s, and so we didn't call it bipolar disorder or manic depressive. Um, we just knew that it was um, painful. It was um, emotionally uh, painful to see my dad uh, really struggle with being able to work because he would sleep a lot. Um, or when he was manic, he would be active a lot and be away from home. And so it really started to divide our family. Like I said, we didn't talk about it as a mental illness. And so as a child, I didn't really know what was causing all of this disruption. And so um, I really wondered if it was something I had done wrong, uh, if there was a reason why my dad um, was not being as connected to our family. I thought maybe he didn't love me. And so as a little girl uh, going to church, uh, thankfully I was at a church that was very good about sharing the good news of the gospel and sharing in uh, very generous words uh, God's gracious love for us. And so I really believe the church carried me through that very difficult time, even though we didn't share at the church or with anyone um, in the church what was happening at home. Uh, I knew the church was a safe place to get support and to hear about God's love. Sarah, in a recent blog post, you discussed sharing some of your family history with your son. In an episode where Tony was interviewing me, I shared my experience with my children when they were 10 and 13 years of age. How could you... Talk to, to our listeners a bit about how that experience went for you, sharing your family history with, with your son. Yes, I, I knew I wanted to really be more proactive and not have secrets and hide things to really view mental health challenges through a lens of um, hope and prevention and recovery, and so to really normalize it. And so um, I'll share two different stories. One... Um, was on a, on a day where my husband was having challenges with his depression and anxiety. And um, sometimes what is helpful is to give him space. And mm -hmm. so I brought my son with me to the church. And on the way to the church, I said, you know, dad was really struggling today. He's not feeling well. Sometimes he feels depressed and anxious and he needs to be alone. And I, and I told my son, I want you to know that dad struggles with that. And my son just looked at me and he said, Mom, why didn't you tell me that sooner? Mm. How old is he? He's eight. So here mm. he is eight years old. And he has been living with, you know, a dad who has depression and anxiety. And so, of course, he's noticed and seen behaviors and symptoms. But we hadn't yet told him why that was. And so... By him saying, why didn't you tell me sooner? I think he was ready to know. Yeah, It helps him understand it's nothing he's done or um, anything about him, but it's about the, managing an illness and trying to support each other in recovery. I think that's a mature question for an eight-year-old to ask. Yes, he's quite a deep, <laughs> he's quite a deep thinker. <laughs> Where does he get that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, blessed are the crazies. <laughs> um, one question. Language can shape 
perception and, and cultivate stigma in many ways. And I'd like to hear from you, what is an example of mental health terms that you think need to be reconsidered when we talk about uh, mental illness, mental health challenges? Um, I would say one of the um, advances that we've made that I think is really important is what's called people-first language. And so we don't label or objectify people um, and we don't identify people by um, their diagnosis. And so, you know, in my book, I'm, I write a lot about my brother, Scott, who um, I admire him so much. He's in recovery and he lives with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And so that's an example of saying, I wouldn't say my brother is, my brother is bipolar. He's, he is not bipolar. That's something he manages, but he is my brother. You know, he's a scientist. He's a teacher. Um, he's a lot of things. And right. so around language, that's what I would say would be most important is to really um, uplift uh, who people are in their many facets and not to pigeonhole people by one, one identifying factor. You talk about your brother in your book and your father, and a very impactful chapter in your book is talking about another family member. Uh, I believe, was it a cousin? Yes, my cousin Paul. Yes, that story was just heart-wrenching. And I, if you would feel comfortable sharing that for just a moment with our listeners, that's a, that's a moment that very few people capture in, in writing. It is. It's, we don't talk about child abuse. We don't talk about sex abuse very much. And we don't talk about our country's um, pattern of executing people who are marginalized. And so my cousin, it was a victim of child abuse and domestic violence. And because of uh, the abuse he experienced as a infant and a toddler, uh, he did not get the treatment he needed. He developed a lot of behaviors that were um, destructive. And so uh, that led him through adolescence to break the law, to go to jail. And when I was in high school, he murdered a neighborhood woman in his rural community. And we were all shocked. Mm -hmm. uh, he had done petty crimes, you know, public urination and decent exposure. But this we never expected. And um, he had a psychotic episode when, um, when this happened. And so when he was on trial, they tried to make a case in the state of Missouri that um, Paul had been a victim of so much abuse. He had several different diagnoses, uh, mental health challenges. But uh, Missouri decided uh, to sentence him to death, and he was 20 years old. Wow. So for 10 years, he was on death row and um, chose solitary confinement because he was the victim of rape on death row. And when I was in seminary, he and I reconnected and we wrote letters to one another. And he had shared to, with me that he experienced um, forgiveness and grace through the ministry uh, by the chaplain and was reconnecting with God and was wanting to follow Jesus. Right. As a man sentenced to die. And so it was truly incredible to be with him on his execution day, to accompany him through that preparation, and to see him withdraw 
from uh, the reality. He literally curled up into a fetal position just prior to his execution. I don't think he could believe mm. this was happening. Mm -hmm. And so part of my role was to remind him that he is loved, he is a child of God, and that we love him. Yes. So it's, it's tragic that a lot of people on death row are marginalized people of color. Most of them live in poverty, and I think the statistics are really high. Maybe half have a mental health diagnosis. And so if you mm -hmm. look at our mental health care system, uh, it's very tragic that a lot of our mental health care is, is accessible most in our jails and prisons. Yes. So, Sarah, that is a deeply impactful story. And in sharing the, the three stories of family members, you have seen the impact of mental health from, from many different angles and human experiences with those struggles. Is there a particular form of advocacy that you've really been led to through the experiences you've had with your family members? Yes, I'd say it's very basic and very simple. It's breaking the silence. And that's based on my own experience of being ashamed and feeling, especially in the church, being afraid that I would be judged because I felt called to be a minister. Because what stigma and shame does is it disconnects us, it isolates us, and it prevents us from getting the support that we need. And I have had so many powerful experiences connecting with people in church. You know, when it's a sermon I preach or it's a Sunday school lesson I give, um, opening the door for people to say, you know, that's in my family too. And I've never told anyone before. Mm -hmm. And and I feel as Christians, when we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, and that's how we experience God's love, if we aren't sharing ourselves with each other, if there's things about us that we're hiding, then I think that really prevents us from being fully known and fully loved as children yes. of God. So for me, it's really a powerful way to strengthen our faith, strengthen our communities, and help our churches see that the mission of Jesus Christ uh, to bring hope and healing really includes mental health. There is a coffee shop in Chicago called uh, Sip of Hope Coffee Bar, and they are donating their profits to suicide prevention and they intentionally uh, encourage those conversations and have all of their staff trained in mental health first aid. Uh, I just looked into this last night and it was just incredible. I love that. That's a sip of hope.com yeah. is the website and they're in uh, Logan Square neighborhood in Chicago. Every city in America should have a sip of hope cafe. And that's a ministry that, that churches and could do. We could do that. You know, on that subject, um, on, the, on the subject of suicide and, and also mental health, mental illness, um, what do you see as perhaps the one unique thing a church or persons of faith have to offer people who are considering suicide? Well, um, in my blog post about um, suicide culture shock, I do talk about the Center for Disease Control and their report that came out this month. And what I was struck by was they have seven different um, 
factors that connect to prevention of suicide. And one of them is being connected in relationships and helping people to not feel alone. So that really stood out to me as, as a ministry of the church. You know, we are the body of Christ. We are all come together as one. And so for us to be able to prevent suicide by focusing on caregiving ministries, connecting people in small groups, you know, if everyone was part of a small group, that provides a powerful sense of belonging. It provides an easy way to talk to people when you're uh, feeling vulnerable, and it provides a way to look out for one another in our everyday lives. So I think that's is, you know, we, we do it. And um, it's, it's how we, we grow to know uh, Christ in each other, and it's how we share hope on a daily basis. So you've got some really good news to share. Just yesterday, you were installed as a pastor at a church in Indianapolis. Yay! It <laughs> is so it good great, to hear. Yeah, it's a great celebration. We had uh, the Reverend Tracy Blackman as the preacher for the installation. She's the executive minister for Just, Justice and Witness and Local Church Ministries of the United Church of Christ. And I work with her on the national staff as the new minister for disabilities and mental health justice. So part of my future work will be partnering with our office in Washington, D.C. to focus more on policy and advocacy. That role at sounds like a, a national kind of denominational level, as, as well as a pastoral role at a local church, you'll be balancing those two ministries. Is that correct? Yes, I'll have one foot in the local church and one foot in the national church. I'm full-time at the church and part-time with the national setting. How do you see unique ministry being developed to, to move in that direction within your personal church as well as the national Episcopal denomination? Yes, so in the United Church of Christ, we have um, what we've developed called the WISE uh, Church. It's welcoming, inclusive, supportive, engaged. And this is a uh -huh. curriculum where churches create a covenant where they promise to prioritize a mental health ministry. And part of uh -huh. that is guidelines for how to create a spirituality group for uh, people with a diagnosis and their loved ones. We also have a program for accessible to all, and that's uh, the broader umbrella of disabilities and ways churches can be more accessible. So part mm -hmm. of my role will be linking these resources to local churches and then my own uh, congregation in Indianapolis, First Congregational, we are starting to prioritize that we are being called to being a healing community. And we want yes. to make, um, make a big effort to focus on activities and um, events that will lead to healing. So whether that's mind, body, or spirit, things like support groups, doing yoga, um, providing space for people to gather for education. So we, we, we see that as our calling to help serve the community and provide a, a space for mental wellness. Sarah, our key question on every episode is what does healing mean to you? I think this is a good time uh, for you to respond to that question. 
healing means hope. I mean, healing comes through um, moments of hope when we feel connected to God, to our friends, and to our family. And I think it, it also feels like a deep and refreshing breath of life. You know, when God created um, Adam, he breathed into Adam. And when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, it was uh, the breath of life. And so I really think about the Holy Spirit as mm -hmm. breath, as God's breath. And so hope is when we can take a little bit more of a deeper breath in God and feel that God's presence is with us and will always be with us. And that's healing. That's very nice, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I want to swing back a bit to the topic of suicide and uh, raise a, um, a particularly contentious question that came to me yesterday. Someone said to me yesterday that they were concerned that talking so much about suicide might lead to more ideation or attempts. How would you respond to this? That's a great question, and we do need to be educated and informed in our language. Uh, we know that um, talking about suicide in healthy and safe ways is positive. Uh, when we talk about suicide, we want to focus on preventative measures. And mm -hmm. if someone um, has died by suicide, we want to use the correct language. And we also want to avoid what's called contagion. And contagion is when there is unsafe communication about suicide, uh, such as giving details of the method of death. We don't mm. want to put images into people's minds and, and show them ways to die by suicide by talking about other people's experience. While we do want to be informative and preventative in our language, we also need to be careful that we don't glorify it or, or make it seem like it's okay because it's, it's not what we want for people and their family. Yeah, it seems like a really fine line. Uh, clearly, we don't want to go back to the days when um, we, we try to scare the hell out of people so they don't commit suicide or that they don't die by suicide um, on the same hand we don't want to uh, like you said glorify suicide and, and normalize it in a sense I was reading um, just yesterday there, there's a fear um, that that in our society you know there's been a uh, over time a growing increasing rates of suicide and as there's mm -hmm. speculation of why that might be one possibility is that we maybe don't have the protective factors of, of some religious beliefs, you know, whether you agree with it or not, um, believing that people who die by suicide um, will go to hell. I know that's very harsh. And in some measures, that was a protective factor because people would say, well, I don't want to go to hell, and so I, I will not die by suicide. Yeah, well, you know, it's cause for for thought. You know, I mean, uh, uh, that's um, that's that's really eye opening. I would I would argue that a protective factor is something that is affirmative. Right. So, what would you? How would you craft a protective factor through a theological lens? I really resonate with the body of Christ imagery as you have shared, and a theme 
for me on this show and throughout my own personal ministry has been bringing people out of isolation. I think a protective factor is a robust understanding of what it means to be in community. And I think it also means developing the spiritual practices that are practiced in isolation, the practices of silence, solitude, and stillness primarily, because it is okay to spend time alone. And when we can cultivate spiritual disciplines that are meant to be done when you are alone, we're really opening up that kind of space for people to value that time instead of just associating those experiences as isolation, as experiences of depression, because they don't need to be. Yes. I mean, we've seen research, right, that shows that um, meditation and prayer has a positive impact on our brains and our mental health. And so to equip people with with the tools for how to do that, how to be alone with ourselves in a way that is um, healing. I agree. Uh, one thing my brother has said in, in terms of um, you know, his own suicidality is that mm -hmm. he remembers I had a conversation with him where I said, you know, Scott, you are an important part of our family. You are an important spiritual leader in our family, and we need you. And so I think communicating in that positive way about how important his life is, is a protective factor. Yes. And another part of community is just the ministry of presence, not putting pressure on yourself to have to perform in social context. You know, you value Scott's presence in your life even when he's not the life of the party, right? Even when he is not feeling well and may not be very talkative. His presence is a value unto itself. And I think knowing that is another protective factor. Yes. To accept people for who they are, not how they perform, uh, for, for simply being connected to us. And, mm -hmm. and then I think that's a great point because some people feel um, embarrassed that they're not feeling very social. And so um, sometimes that can harm friendships because people will disengage or distance themselves. And so I think we have a lot of growth to do as a society about our compassion for one another. With the recent uh, deaths of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, th there is going to be more national conversation. And I'm already starting to hear things said on podcasts and radios that I think is really emergent language. For you, what would be, I guess, a, a best case scenario on the way a national narrative develops around what has happened in the past two weeks? Oh, I think I would go back to the suicide culture shock. One thing I read about Kate Spade, I believe her sister has started to share a little bit about Kate's uh, history with depression. 
And mm -hmm. I believe that there was an effort to have Kate at um, inpatient or outpatient to have more intensive treatment. But there was, this is what was reported, that Kate said that she did not want to have inpatient or outpatient um, treatment because it would ruin the image that she had developed for her company. This mm. happy-go-lucky, you know, successful women's uh, company brand, that it would impact her brand negatively. That yes. just breaks my heart, you know, that, that for whatever reasons, you know, uh, she felt she had to protect her brand and that her own treatment she thought would negatively impact the bottom line. It would hurt profits. Mm. And so what does it say about our society that she had that fear? It was there truth to that. Do we make people perform and be perfect? You know, that's sick. That, that we... That, that is a social sickness. Yeah, it is. Yeah, in a business context, it's very possible that if she had shared those personal struggles, she would have been counseled that her, her brand is more important than her health. I don't know what was said behind closed doors, but it is very sad that brand can trump your, your personal wellness. Well, and I have, uh, I know people in the military in very high level positions who also uh, choose not to get mental health treatment for fear of a negative impact in their career. Going back to your new roles uh, at the church in Indianapolis and at the national level, have you ministered to people before who are at that uh, moment of disclosure where they want to share a diagnosis in the workplace or, you know, at church or with their family, and you have helped uh, be with them through that moment to, to make a decision to disclose? Well, uh, what comes to mind is we hosted an event at our church that looked at um, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender uh, topics through the lens of the Bible. And so we mm -hmm. had various scripture passages. And one of the attendees was very upset by... Uh, some of the scriptures that have been used in a negative and judgmental way. And so um, I went and spent some time with her, and she shared with me her history of mental health challenges and that this had triggered her. And so, as you said earlier, the Ministry of Presence, I just sat with her and listened to her share, and she shared that she has suicidality, that... Um, she was very, feeling very vulnerable, and so I talked her through a safety plan and um, asked her who her support ne networks were, who she could call, if she could see her therapist the next day, and did she need to call a hotline. And so simply by um, listening and being present with her in that moment of deep anguish and pain, we were able to journey together what I call through the valley of the shadows. And she was in uh -huh. a shadowy valley, and I uh, came beside her, and she was able to walk through it. And by the end of the evening, she was in a good place. Good. So briefly mentioned that the Sip of Hope Cafe that is in Chicago where they are intentionally, you know, we talk about branding, but they are 
in a way, branding themselves as a safe place to go to have a cup of coffee and, and talk about mental health struggles. Uh, with, with your personal work that you are bringing into the church, um, the church is aware of your ministry already. So I, I could see your church becoming, in a way, a, a church where people with mental health struggles are really um, wanting to come, learn more about, perhaps become a member. How do you see yourself uh, building out you know, a lay ministry of others who can really help you know, in the event that you are having a lot of folks come to your church who, who may want to disclose, who, who want to be in a community where they can share their diagnosis with others? Well, we had a training last Sunday was um, Mental Health Sunday. We brought in Rachel Keith, whose new book, The Life-Saving Church, Faith Communities and Suicide Prevention, is just released by Chalice Press. I highly recommend it. And so she gave workshops. And one of her workshops was how to be a church that was informed and prepared to prevent suicide. And it was because of that workshop that another uh, lay member of the church saw this person struggling um, and came and got me and said, Pastor Sarah, I think you need to come talk to someone. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to the lay leader later and she said, Sarah, before that training about suicide, I would have just seen that person and kept on walking. And I would have assumed they needed to be alone and I shouldn't bother them. But because she had had the training, she knew that someone who is that distressed really needs support. And so she initiated a conversation that led to that person getting help. Mm -hmm. So I believe I'm a big believer in educating people, whether it's through a mental health first aid, through NAMI programs, um, empowering people and giving them the skills they need. Because as you say, it can't just be the pastor, right? Everyone right. in the church should really know, um, just like if somebody uh, needed CPR, uh, everyone should have the skills to, to be able to help people who are in a mental health crisis, at least get to the next level of care. Sarah, do you have uh, more books in the works? I know we, we've talked um, about your, your Chalice Press uh, relationship and some ideas you had for new books. How, how is that coming along? Chalice is wonderful. They are they support uh, mental health ministry. They see it as part of their mis mission and ministry, and so they they would like for me to to write more books. I would like to uh, finish a book I've started, which is about marriages. And so, when um, in a marital relationship or a very committed partner relationship, when mental health symptoms arise, you know, how do we navigate those intimate relationships through the various uh, challenges of mental health? Yes. You've got a lot on your plate, Sarah, and you are doing some amazing ministry. And I, I just feel blessed to be able to drive up to Indy and see you on occasion, as we've done a few times. Uh, it's also really cool that you and Jen get to spend some time together at Bethany Fellows. She really appreciates the relationship she has with you. So, so thank you for the connections with, with my family and just our ongoing mental health ministry. You're welcome. 
And Sarah Briley and I would like to thank you for uh, being with us this, uh, this fine day. Well, thank you. I look forward to continuing to find ways for us to partner and work together. And thank you for your work that you both do to help bring hope and healing to so many. I feel that that was an excellent interview. One of my takeaways, her compelling narrative about her cousin Paul mm-hmm. and uh, the abuse he suffered as a child and infant and toddler um, that led to um, aggressive behavior and ultimately to murder, um, which was a shock to the family. Mm-hmm. And then to compound the... Um, the situation he was put on death row and uh, she ministered to him at the point of his execution and saw and witnessed that he had found peace with God and found a measure of redemption. Mm -hmm. I'm just so happy for Sarah. You know, there's been a couple uh, occupational changes in her life and uh, I'm excited that she's in a church that, uh, is there in Indianapolis, so it's an easy transition for her for her family. Uh, they don't have to move anywhere, and she's in a church that is very w- well aware of her ministry. Uh, I think her mental health ministry has probably developed uh, probably within the last five years, and and with the public speaking writing she's done, uh, the church knows that she's coming in with that as a real focus of ministry, and uh, I look forward to seeing how they integrate her passion into the church's ministry. One last thing, we had uh, Amy Simpson, you know, one of our first guests in the show, wrote a book called Blessed Are the Unsatisfied. Mm-hmm. Sarah's book, Blessed Are the Crazy, mm-hmm. I find that to be very unique and how mm-hmm. they are kind of turning those terms on their head to show the blessings and the things that we almost instantly dismiss as problems in society mm-hmm. and they both have a measure of um, I don't know if I want to say contentiousness about it but I, I do think people it, they have to unpack in their books why they chose unsatisfied and crazy as their terms mm-hmm. I know Sarah in certain circles has been criticized to reclaim that title of crazy because mm-hmm. people, in some mental health circles have tried to do away with that term altogether. And uh, with Amy sort of uh, distinguishing unsatisfied from dissatisfied, Mm -hmm. she really has to unpack what that means. So they've creatively, like you said, uh, uses the terms to uh, serve the purpose that uh, the Beatitudes originally intended. Yeah, uh, topics well worth writing a book about, mm-hmm. and I, I'm very blessed to have been able to read those books mm-hmm. and, and understand some of my own unsatisfied and crazy moments can be a, a blessing to me and, mm-hmm. and to others as I process through those times in my life. Next episode, Maria will be with us. Maria Riddle again. We've promised before, and we will deliver. Yes. Maria was uh, uh, is on her way toward full certification in art therapy and 
She has great passion. And one thing that I really enjoy you might be listening for is the way she intricately describes the process and product of of art therapy. It, mm-hmm. it requires a lot more than just handing someone a crayon and uh, giving them a uh, coloring book and uh, expecting them to color a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more diagnosis diagnostic yeah this uh, didn't take off with the adult coloring book movie. <laughs> tony our show has come to a close now is the time to ask for five star reviews please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars then click on write a review Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. As it ended, he, he he threw down his guitar, sort of like uh, Peter Townsend. And yeah, danced a jig, <laughs> and waved his butt at us. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs>